Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, so when you arrive here at our clinic on the third floor, as soon as you walk through the doors, you're going to be greeted by our receptionist in a beautifully bright lit room. We have a lot of plants all over the place. We want to make this as natural of an environment as possible. This is Robin Bannister. She's a psychotherapist at a private clinic in Toronto called Field Trip Health. But this place doesn't look like a clinic. Honestly, it looks a lot more like a spa. We have a big, open, bright lounge waiting room that has a bunch of different comfortable couches and, you know, really just uh, lets you relax and sink in before your experience here. There are private medical clinics across Canada. Many offer services that provincial and territorial health plans don't cover for people who can afford them. In the case of Field Trip Health, the thing they offer that's not on the menu at your regular doctor's office? Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. If you look to the left, we have this tall archway that leads to our four dosing rooms. Did you catch that? This place has dosing rooms. We have several different themes and names for the rooms. Those are sea, sunset, sky, and mountain. It's here, in these dosing rooms, that you take ketamine. While a therapist, like Robin, sits nearby, helping guide your medically prescribed psychedelic trip. And then there's the dosing chair, which is a fully reclining automatic leather chair that is very, very comfortable. Again, you can see lots of plant life. We have uh, an essential oil machine here, and the music is here to greet you to, again, just create a really comfortable, calming environment. Uh, we find this is really important. I knew about uh, K-holes. This is Julian Uzielli. Okay, what else did you know about ketamine like six months ago? I'd heard that it was a horse tranquilizer. I'd heard that it was like a weird sort of party club drug. Um, I had no idea that it was associated with mental health at all. But that is exactly what brought Julian to this clinic back in January. Julian is a radio producer here at CBC. In the before times, his desk was just across from mine. And Julian was just about the last person I'd expect to try ketamine therapy. Previously, I thought of myself as sort of a very rational person, kind of skeptical about anything that you might lump under the umbrella of like alternative medicine. Uh, but having been through this experience, I have to say it's challenged my skepticism um, and... I think it's uh, forced me to admit that maybe I don't know as much as I think I do. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. 
In recent years, there has been a renaissance of psychedelic-assisted depression treatments. Today, we are going to follow Julian's experience through one of them, ketamine therapy. What it is, how it might work, and the circumstances that brought him to that dosing room in the first place. We're going to hear from people who think this is a mental health breakthrough, a doctor who worries that the whole thing is moving too fast, and the people most affected by Julian's depression, his wife and his parents. Just a warning, in the first half of this story, things are going to get a little heavy. We're going to talk about depression and suicidal thoughts. Okay, Julian is going to take over for now, but I will be back in a little bit. I'm 30 years old, and for as long as I can remember, I've gone through bouts of depression. It can last months or even years at a time. When I'm feeling okay, I'm generally cynical and pessimistic, but when it's bad, it's really bad. I can't summon the energy to get out of bed. I lack the motivation to take basic care of myself, let alone do chores around the house. My work suffers. I withdraw from the world. I stop reaching out to friends. I ignore messages and phone calls. Fatalistic thoughts play on a loop in my head, and I feel utterly hopeless about the future and powerless to change it. And all of that eventually leads to the thought, why go on living? Uh, When I'm feeling that way, what's it like to be around me? Uh, it's stressful. Very stressful. That's my mom, Robin. Yes, she has the same name as my ketamine therapist. Please save your Freud jokes until the end. It it was a case of not knowing which Julian we were going to see that day. Whether we were going to see Julian who was in a really, really bad mood and kind of monosyllabic and not really all that responsive and really didn't seem particularly uh, happy to be with us or see us, or the Julian who is really communicative and and interested and engaged and talkative, we felt a little bit like we were walking on eggshells. You know, watching our words carefully, avoiding topics that we thought might enrage, might be a little strong, but but um, that might escalate or get you, get you wound up. That's my dad, Steve. And this is my wife, Danielle. Um, okay, so like, good day, bad day. <laughs> They're very different. During the pandemic, and especially this past winter, my depression was as bad as it had ever been. And since we both work from home and Toronto was in perpetual lockdown, Danielle had a front row seat. A bad day was you not being able to get out of bed. Like, literally being so depressed that you cannot move. What were those days like for you? They were rough. Um, It's not just like living through a pandemic and worrying about that. It's also worrying about you and whether or not, whether or not you were in a good mental state. I worried about you and your suicidal thoughts. I worried about our future. 
If you've never had serious suicidal thoughts, it can be hard to understand what it's like. Everyone's experience is different, of course, but here's how it was for me. I might be ruminating, for example, about how climate change is getting worse and the world's governments aren't doing nearly enough about it and big oil companies are spending billions to cloud the debate and there's no way we'll hit our emissions targets. It's only going to keep getting worse. We're all doomed. There's no future. So I should just kill myself. It's kind of like that. It appears at the end of a string of increasingly negative thoughts. And I used to have those thought loops all the time. The climate change thing is just an example. It could be triggered by a situation at work or something I hear on the news, or a lot of the time it's not triggered by anything at all. I just would have this powerful certainty that I didn't want to be alive anymore. And that's the stage I was at a few months ago in the fall of 2020. Was there a time or, or a moment or, or something when you first realized that like this time it was worse than the usual depression, that, that something was really wrong this time? Yeah, because you usually, um, any other time that you've told me that you were suicidal, you never explained to me, you know, there, there's like several steps to suicidal thoughts, right? There's first the thought of everything sucks, I want to end things. Um, the next step is like planning. And then it's the action. You started doing the planning portion. And you were actually telling me what those plans were. And you had never done that before this last year. I'm sorry. I feel so awful hearing you say that now. But I remember talking about it. (sighs) Yeah, that would be a sign. Yeah. (laughs) I remember being in that planning phase, and maybe fantasizing is a better word. It, It was like an obsession that I couldn't stop thinking about. There was one day in particular I remember. It was one of those days when I couldn't get out of bed, and from the moment I opened my eyes... All I could think about was that I wanted to die. I could not fathom the idea of getting up and starting yet another workday from my desk, which was two feet away from my bed, and then going back to bed and back to work and back to bed. I think it also ended up being the day that my doctor told me I needed to take a leave of absence from work. You were at an all-time low, really. Like The, the depression had become more significant than ever. Um, yeah, it was manifesting in a, in a you know, literal in, inability to function at a level that you couldn't work. This is my therapist, Shauna Tritt. She's a clinical psychologist, and I've been seeing her for about four years, so she has a pretty good idea of what my mental states are like. For most of that time, I had been on various antidepressant medications as well, and they helped, sometimes. But it never seemed to fully get rid of the depression, only reduce it. Part of the difficulty with treating depression is it's by nature associated with a hopelessness and a lack of motivation. Because with other disorders, there's an impetus to change. There's a motivation that drives people to engage with treatment. With depression, you have to fight your, your gut and every instinct, every fiber in your being, which weighs you down. It makes everything harder when you're depressed. You can't think as well. You can't focus. You can't 
you know, motivate yourself to, to do much. And so it's just so extraordinarily difficult to treat depression. That's exactly how I was feeling. I couldn't do anything, didn't want to do anything, would rather die than do anything. So I went on medical leave from work. I stopped actively thinking about suicide, but I didn't feel good, just less bad. And I knew the toll this was taking on my loved ones, on Danielle and my mom and dad. I had begun to really believe that I was incurable. I was on my fourth or fifth therapist and taking two different antidepressants every day just to make my life bearable. And I figured this is just what my life was like now. But there was still one avenue I hadn't explored. We're back with Rachel, who was treated with MDMA for her post-traumatic stress disorder and psychiatry. For the past few years, I've been seeing a steady trickle of headlines about new experimental therapies using drugs like MDMA and psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Professor David Nutt is calling for a change in rules so that research can begin into whether magic mushrooms could hold a cure for depression. So I did a Google search to see if anyone in Toronto was offering it. What I found was those drugs are still illegal for medical use in Canada, although it's widely believed in the industry that legalization is on the horizon. But what I found instead surprised me. A clinic offering ketamine-assisted therapy. Fieldtrip Health is a first of its kind clinic that offers psychedelic psychotherapy integrated with psychedelic medicine. I, think it's gonna I had no idea ketamine could be used in this way. Up until then, I just thought of it as a party drug. I mean, when you hear ketamine, what do you picture? scene out of train spotting. The streets are awash with drugs you can have for unhappiness and pain, and we took them all. Or a bunch of ravers at a club. I think of undergrads snorting away their student loans off a dirty coffee table covered in old sticky beer stains. And while plenty of people do use and abuse it recreationally, ketamine has actually been in use as a general anesthetic for over 50 years. That's where it gets its reputation as a horse tranquilizer, if you've ever heard that one. Because, yes, in extremely large doses, it can sedate a horse. But it works just as well on other animals, including humans. So, if you've ever been put under general anesthetic for surgery, it's possible you were given ketamine. But these days, what people are really excited about is its potential as an antidepressant. What was once known as an animal tranquilizer and even a party drug is now proving to be an effective treatment. Ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic with psychedelic properties and is a... The mother of two has flown in all the way from Newfoundland to get help from a privately run clinic in Mississauga, which uses ketamine... A lifetime of depression, lifting in just a few minutes. Dennis, suffering for years... Had tried but it's not just for anyone feeling a little down. It's not a treatment of first resort. To qualify, your mental illness needs to be considered treatment-resistant, meaning you've tried conventional methods of treatment without success. I first sought professional help when I was in university, about 10 years ago, and ever since then I've been in and out of therapy and on and off antidepressants with mixed success, so that meant I fit the bill. And speaking of bills... So yeah, I did have to use like a third of our life savings, roughly. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel about that? Gulp. it's better work (laughs) yeah i was like man i really hope he comes out really happy (laughs) (laughs) this was not cheap and that was also a pretty big consideration for danielle and i before i decided to sign up we ultimately decided it was worth it because well nothing else was working 
I was tired of living like this. And if this unconventional treatment could offer some relief, I was willing to give it a try. So I told my doctor about the program and he wrote me a referral. I passed my screening with a psychiatrist who confirmed that I did have treatment-resistant depression. I had a virtual preparation session with therapist Robin, and I prepared myself for a very large credit card bill. And then it was time for the drugs. When I arrive for my first ketamine session, I take a seat in the waiting room. There's a panoramic view of the city, and on the exposed brick wall, there's a TV playing a close-up of a babbling brook. A moment later, I'm greeted by Robin. My name is Robin Bannister. I am a psychotherapist here at Field Trip Health. She'll be my therapist and guide during the program. She'll be with me in the dosing sessions, and she'll be leading me through therapy to make sense of my experiences after. She hands me a branded tote bag to welcome me to my first session. Inside, I find a journal and a pen, a book about psychedelic therapy, and a small bottle of reishi mushroom tincture. Cue the alarm bells. Mentally, I roll my eyes. I'm in a bad mood today. Last night, I tried doing a guided meditation to help me relax, and it didn't work. (laughs) I ended up feeling frustrated and angry, and that feeling is still lingering this morning. And it probably doesn't help that today was the first time I've ridden the subway since before the pandemic, and we're at the height of the second wave in Toronto. So I feel a bit guarded as I take in my surroundings at the clinic. When I walk into the dosing room, I hear ambient music playing softly from a speaker on a side table next to a big leather recliner. This is the actual music you're hearing right now. It's a track called Ice Blink by Pass Into Silence. It's from one of the Spotify playlists they use in the treatment sessions. Art hangs on the walls, lit by gentle mood lighting. There's an earthy fragrance in the air, coming from an essential oil diffuser on a shelf. It feels more like I'm about to get a luxurious massage than mental health care, but I'm trying my best to stay open-minded here. This is costing me a lot of money, after all, and I want to make the most of it. I'm introduced to a friendly nurse practitioner and a respiratory therapist who will be monitoring my vital signs during the session from outside the room. After a brief medical questionnaire, I'm ready to begin. The staff cover me with a weighted blanket and a top sheet. I'm not allowed to touch the blanket because of COVID. Then they hand me a paper cup holding the ketamine tablets. My instructions are to hold the tablets in my mouth, let them dissolve, and then swish for about 10 minutes. I pop the tablets. I chose the mango flavor, but they still taste kind of bitter. They tell me that's the taste of the ketamine. While I swish, Robin reads a guided meditation to help get me in the zone. Sit still and begin to close your eyes gently, allowing your body to relax and fall into the chair. Feel heavy as you sink lower and lower into the chair and allow it to hold you up. Just relax. As I swish away, I start to feel very relaxed. My limbs become heavy. My eyes feel droopy. I sink into the chair. The lights seem dimmer than they were before, but maybe that's just the drugs. 
Begin to imagine that you are standing in a forest, your bare feet upon the soft green grass. The trees are tall and create a soft shade over you. It is quiet. In the distance, you hear the birds tweeting softly. After 10 minutes, I spit out the medicine. Then I put on a set of eye shades and headphones, which is difficult because, well, I'm high on ketamine. I lean back as Robin lowers the chair into the fully reclined position. It's a weird sensation, and between that, the music and the drugs, it feels kind of like I'm plunging into the abyss. Okay, Julian, I have to cut in here. This sounds more like you're at a music festival meets day spa than at a doctor's office. I know, right? This is not really what you have in mind, probably, when you're picturing state-of-the-art of mental health care. But... Trust me, I felt the same way. And even during that first session, even though all I'm doing is just lying there in a chair, part of my mind, like that self-critical depression, anxiety part of my brain is going like, you're doing this wrong. You're messing this up. (laughs) Wow, you really do need therapy if you're thinking, how do I do ketamine right? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I mean, you had been through, you had tried a lot of treatments before trying this one, Uh, but not to get personal as in any more personal than your crushing depression. Was this your first trip? I mean, I'm already spilling all my other secrets, right? Right. Uh, I had never tried ketamine before. Uh, Okay. But let's just say that as a 30-year-old who went to university, this was not my first experience with uh, an altered state of consciousness. Perfect. We will just leave that there. Um, But what did other people think? Like your parents? Did you tell your parents? Yeah, I did. And when I first told them, I was kind of surprised by their reaction uh, because they were really supportive without a hint of any kind of concern or or, uh, apprehensiveness. It was only later that my mom told me what she was really thinking. Ah. As you know, I'm very, uh, (laughs) very skeptical of anything that that might be considered woo-woo. And so as soon as we got off the phone, I started Googling it. I wanted to see if it was a reputable-looking outfit. Uh, I didn't know if it was going to be in somebody's basement or, you know, somebody's closet. That is such a legitimate mom concern. (laughs) I know. This was what I was expecting to hear the first time. Right. Uh, And my partner, Danielle, had her own worries, too. I mean, as far as I knew, like, honestly, I didn't know much about ketamine, so. What did you know? I mean, like, that scene in Get Out, that's <laughs> I thought of the sunken place. <laughs> Do you know the scene she's talking about, AC? Yes, the one from Get Out where Catherine Keener hypnotizes Daniel Kaluuya and he gets trapped inside his own body. <laughs> yeah, that one. You're paralyzed. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Sink. <laughs> Now you're in the sunken place. I have to admit, that first time that I got tilted back in the chair and the drugs are kicking in and the music is swirling, like I, my mind went straight to the sunken place. I couldn't help it. The big question, of course, did you hallucinate? Yes, uh, in later sessions, not the first time. So the first session, they start you off on a relatively low dose and you sort of work your way up. So that time... You know, if you've ever had general anesthetic and that feeling where you're like just about to lose consciousness, but you feel kind of loopy, that's kind of what it felt like. But the following week, 
I really hit the sweet spot. They increase the dose slightly each session, so this is my highest yet. And only a few minutes into the session, I can already tell that this time it's hitting different. Firstly, the physical sensations are way more intense. It's difficult to move and speak. I feel really heavy and sunken into the chair. and It almost feels like my consciousness has become uncoupled from my body. You might have heard the ketamine effect referred to as a K-hole. I get why they call it that now. So I guess the sunken place metaphor is actually kind of accurate, except that it's not scary. And also, unlike Daniel Kalia in Get Out, I actually consented to this. Now, unlike my first two sessions, this time I definitely hallucinate. It's kind of hard to describe in a way that will make sense, but there are lights and colors pulsating to the rhythm of the music. And as the music swells to a crescendo, I feel like I'm on the tip of a rocket blasting into space. And then when it comes down, I feel like I'm floating. Some of the images I see are abstract, stereotypical, kaleidoscopic, psychedelic stuff. Others are recognizable images. For example, at one point, I see myself as the cartoon character Bojack Horseman, which, believe it or not, leads to a very powerful insight about not running from my problems the way that Bojack does. You're responsible for your own happiness, you know? Good lord, that's depressing. No, it's not. I'm responsible for my own happiness. I can't even be responsible for my own breakfast. The experience made such a huge impression on me that pretty much as soon as I got home, I felt the need to record myself telling Danielle about it. Not necessarily because I was thinking of making a radio story about it, just because it felt so significant that I wanted this record of it. Um, Wednesday, January 13th, 2021. It's 1.30. I just got back from a field trip for my third ketamine trip. It's a lot different today. (laughs) (laughs) The music takes on a whole, a, a really incredibly powerful character that it just doesn't have when you're sober. Uh, it's like you can hear the music you're not just hearing it it's like it you're you're experiencing the music so at this point you may be wondering where the therapist is in all of this and it's not just all kaleidoscopes and crazy visions the therapist's job while you're on your journey that's what they call it is just to be a reassuring presence in the room the psychedelic effects wear off after about an hour so when you're ready you remove the headphones and eye shades, and you sort of debrief with the therapist about what you saw and experienced and felt. Maybe you relive a childhood memory, or you see an imagined scene from your future. For example, in one experience, I was a literal fly on the wall of my childhood classroom, watching myself interact with the other kids. And in another, I was an old man on my deathbed, surrounded by my loved ones. And depending on the trip, there can be a lot to unpack. So it's important to have a trained guide there to help you make sense of it all. They call that part of the process integration. And for me, there was one session where that integration process was especially important. You got in the car and you're like, wow, that was a lot. 
I could see that you had been crying a lot in your session. I can maybe count on one hand the amount of times I've seen you like really full body cry, which me is for me is like, you know, an every other week kind of thing. So um, <laughs> with like that, that stood out to me seeing you come into the car like that. And that's when I got kind of worried. I thought like, oh, crap, are the rest of them going to be like this? Is this going to make your depression worse? Yeah, I sobbed, like sobbed for yeah. an hour yeah. during that session, I remember. During that particular session, I found myself replaying painful memories from a difficult time in my life a few years ago. When I removed my eye shades and headphones, I started explaining it to Robin, and before I knew it, the tears started, and for the next hour, we talked about how those experiences had gone on to shape my whole worldview and personality in a negative way. Suddenly, it was like everything just fell into place. It's like having a plant and like digging around the base and finding roots and then like digging even further down and being like, oh my God, these roots went so far. It was like, just keep, you keep finding more and more. And then eventually you like pulled them all out and you're like, I have it all in front of me. Okay. So the experiences in these memories involved other people. So I don't really want to get into them, but the thing is the details of those experiences just aren't really that important here. My point is that the ketamine allowed me to go to that place in my memory and experience it again with a different perspective. And then talking about it with Robin helped me translate the emotional experience of reliving those memories into a coherent narrative in my mind that helped me make sense of where my depression had been coming from. That's what they mean by integration. Danielle's garden analogy is a really good one. With other conventional treatments for depression, particularly medication, you're mostly aiming at fixing the symptoms of the problem. You're cutting the weeds, but the roots are still there, so the weeds keep growing back. But by the time I finished the ketamine program, I felt like I had finally gotten to the root of my issues. It was like getting five years of therapy crammed into three weeks. I felt transformed. And everyone who knows me agreed. The treatment was more effective than I had ever dared to hope for. The difference is absolutely astounding. I'm gobsmacked. You hit me like a ton of bricks, right? Like you seemed like a, like almost like a different person. You were elated. You're a different person, but in all, all the good ways. You even have a little ponytail. It's so cute. <laughs> you do not have a ponytail. I do, look. Oh my God! You're like a My Little Pony. <laughs> okay, look, it's, I was actually going through my camera roll the other day and it's been 11 months since my last haircut, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it suits you. It suits you, really. All right, coming up, things are going to get a lot more complicated. Sit tight. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called 
Asking for It. Asking for It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. So it sounds like this has really worked for you, but do we actually know how it works? Uh, The short answer is kind of. (laughs) This is still a really new treatment model. The clinic I went to had been open for less than a year when I went, and it was the first in the country to legally offer this therapy. Since then, a few more have popped up in Toronto, and similar clinics have opened in Quebec, Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC, and Nova Scotia. So the science behind all this is a bit complicated and still very much an open subject. So to help me understand it, I called up the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, or CAMH, in Toronto. So my name is Yulek Nyachnitska. I'm clinician scientist at CAMH. I'm staff psychiatrist. I'm also assistant professor with the University of Toronto. And my interest is uh, treatment-resistant conditions. And can you uh, just confirm how, how to pronounce your name? It's Dr. Knyachnitska, but everybody calls me Dr. K. You found a ketamine expert who's literally named Dr. K. Yes, I know, I know. But honestly, I actually didn't even realize until after we hung up. So how how does ketamine work as an antidepressant? That's a very good question. And the very, very simple answer, we actually don't know. Because it works on so many levels. And as data emerge, uh, there's a lot of theories around why it works and how it works and, and where it's not working. So the science is still out, but Dr. K told me about some of the ways that ketamine is thought to work. AC, are you ready for a little science lesson? Yes. The answer is always yes. Okay, so let's start with the basics. Ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. That means that when you take it at a high enough dose, you begin to feel dissociated or detached from your surroundings and your body. Like when you felt like you were in the sunken place. Right, exactly. So that's the big picture effect. Now let's zoom in on what's actually causing the effect. So Dr. K told me there's no one known mechanism of action. So in other words, ketamine works in multiple ways at once, and scientists are still trying to figure out the details of what those ways are and how they work. So I want you to remember back to high school science class, learning about how the brain uses neurotransmitters to send information to the body. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Like if I want to scratch the side of my nose, my brain basically sends a messenger telling my hand to get up there, deal with that itch. Neurotransmitters are like, what, like messenger pigeons for the body, right? Yeah. So you've probably heard of dopamine and serotonin. So those are both examples of common neurotransmitters in the body. Now, different types of neurotransmitters plug into different receptors in your brain, kind of like puzzle pieces. And one of the neurotransmitters that's affected by ketamine is called glutamate. Dr. K told me that glutamate is the predominant excitatory transmitter in the central nervous system. It results in in um, glutamine surge, like exciting, exciting uh, neurotransmitters are just flooding our brains, and this is why it's it's helpful with depression. Okay, so your brain gets a big surge of glutamate. How does that make you feel less depressed? Well, that's the question that scientists are trying to answer. Uh, But we know that glutamate plays a role in regulating something called synaptic plasticity, 
It results in the production of new connections and it improves connectivity of a brain. How exactly does it do it? We don't know yet. So when a depressed patient receives a dose of ketamine, it's kind of like calling in an electrician to dig around in the walls and fix up some faulty wiring. But there's lots of other theories being tested right now as well. And the truth is, it'll take a long time for scientists to be able to definitively answer the question of how ketamine works. And if you don't understand any of what I just said, that's okay, because scientists are still trying to figure it out too. But that leads us to a bigger problem. Because we know relatively little about ketamine as an antidepressant, that means we also don't know the long-term implications of using it in this way. The concern with the ketamine, though, is sustainability. If we look into data on antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, we know that people can stay well for years on medications. We don't have this data on ketamine. We know that the fact wears off fairly fast. In some cases, it's a week or two. In other cases, it may be a couple of months. We also know that it needs some sort of relapse prevention maintenance. There's no research yet on how exactly maintenance is supposed to look like and what type of protocol works better over other type of protocol. So, well, we know that when used properly, ketamine can be safe and effective. We really don't know how long that effect lasts. I mean, does that worry you? A little. Um, but, you know, for me, it's been several months now since I completed my treatment and I'm still feeling good. But I don't attribute that just to the ketamine. There's lots of other factors like therapy, sleep, and exercise that have made a big difference too. I've even taken up daily meditation, which for me might be the most surprising change of all. And it's worth mentioning that I still take antidepressants too. I hope I stay this way, obviously, but every other time in my life that my depression has gone away, eventually it came back. And if and when it does, I don't know how financially sustainable it is for me to rely on this treatment again and again. Psychedelic-assisted therapy is not covered by Ontario's public health program, and it's not covered by a lot of health insurance plans either. At the clinic where I went, a three-week program cost $4,700. Other facilities in Toronto that I looked up have similar prices. Some clinics are experimenting with ideas like group therapy to help lower the cost, and there's a free program in Toronto at St. Michael's Hospital, but there's a long waiting list. I know I was incredibly lucky to be able to pay for this treatment in the first place. There are layers and layers of privilege reaching back to long before I was born that conspired to allow me to have the savings to pay for this out of pocket. Mental health treatment can be really expensive, and ironically, often it's their mental illness itself that prevents people from having the kind of income they need to pay for treatment, whether it's ketamine-assisted therapy or otherwise. And there's one other concern that worries people like Dr. K. Maybe it's already occurred to you. A new treatment comes along, promising rapid results that were previously thought impossible. Interest and hype grows. Clinics and drug companies rush to cash in on the action. Sound familiar to you? Uh, same as with opioids and benzodiazepines, it came into fruition and it was so well received and it was so helpful and everybody wanted to have it and it was prescribed very widely. Till now we're hitting opioid crisis. And there's something else. Also, don't forget that in humans, ketamine antidepressant effects first actually came from research on chronic ketamine users. So people who were addicted 
to ketamine. And we're using ketamine specifically to improve their mood. So there is definitely potential for ketamine uh, dependency. So given these concerns, I asked Dr. K what she thought of the way this treatment model is growing. Well, that one is tricky. This one is very tricky. Uh, people need treatment. The treatment-resistant depression rates are going up and up and up. And given the pandemic and given everything which is happening, I suspect we probably will see more of those. So it's understandable that people are looking for treatment and access is difficult and people need something to feel hopeful about. There's another concern when it comes to ketamine treatment. Who's supplying it and how it's monitored? The overall concern in general with the private clinic is access and lack of regulations and oversight. Mm. People can use different substances, different roads, different doses. It's not an easy substance. It's not something which we need to take lightly. And the lack of regulation and the lack of oversight may unfortunately result in in some harm to patients. What kind of harm? Like, what are you worried could happen? Well, the the biggest concern with the ketamine is potential to induce psychosis. So, for example, if we use this uh, in young population, if there is a predisposition somewhere and it's missed, and we're inducing psychosis in a younger person, there is a possibility that we, we can trigger something down the road. Then because it's an anesthetic, it can result in cardiovascular problems. It can result in respiratory distress. It has a lot of uh, potential side effects with blood pressure, with tachycardia, with confusion, with dissociation, with cognitive impairment, and this needs to be addressed medically. So ketamine is not a miracle drug, and it doesn't work for everyone. And when it does work, we don't know exactly why. But even if we don't fully understand how I was healed, for me, the bottom line is I was healed, at least for now. There's clearly many more questions to be explored. At the very least, though, it's an exciting new field of research. Except it isn't a new field of research at all. Actually, scientists have been aware of the potential of psychedelic drugs to treat mental illness and addiction as far back as the 1950s, years before they became associated with the counterculture of the 60s. In 1959, LSD was still legal in the United States, and taking acid in a therapeutic context was apparently all the rage in Hollywood. Celebrities talked about it openly. Even Hollywood megastar Cary Grant did it. Would you mind doing something for me? Anything, what? Get the heck out of here. Oh, my dear Red, I couldn't do that. That wouldn't be fair to you. You need me to. Grant said this in a 1959 newspaper interview when recounting his experience. I've just been through a psychiatric experience that has completely changed me. I had to face things about myself which I never admitted, which I didn't know were there. I was hiding behind all kinds of defenses, hypocrisies, and vanities. I had to get rid of them layer by layer. That moment when your conscious meets your subconscious is a hell of a wrench. You feel the whole top of your head is lifting off. For the first time in my life, I am truly, deeply, and honestly happy. Cary Grant found true happiness. So, what happened? 
Why haven't psychiatrists been prescribing LSD for the past 60 years? The simple answer is the war on drugs. In response to the counterculture of the 1960s, politicians like Richard Nixon stoked a moral panic and set out to criminalize drug use as much as possible. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. And just like that, the research ground to a halt. Funding dried up, and by the end of the 20th century, with the 1960s long gone, few researchers or clinicians were paying any attention to psychedelics like LSD, mushrooms, and ketamine. But although mainstream science first became aware of psychedelics in the 20th century, they had been in use long before that. Psychedelic plants have been used historically in cultures all around the world, and a lot of that use continues today. Archaeological evidence suggests that some indigenous North and Central American cultures like the Huichol have been using the peyote cactus for at least 5,000 years. When the Spanish first conquered the Aztecs, they outlawed the use of psilocybin mushrooms in religious rituals. In South America, it was ayahuasca. In Africa, ibogaine. There's evidence to suggest that some ancient Greek rituals involved the use of ergot, the fungus from which LSD is derived. So while mainstream science has relatively recently started to explore the potential of plant medicine, indigenous knowledge of psychedelics stretches back millennia. Bia Labache is a Brazilian anthropologist who studies shamanism and the ritual use of psychedelic plants. Earlier this year, she gave a talk at the Harvard Divinity School, and this is what she had to say about just how deep this knowledge goes. What I think is that indigenous people often use psychedelics. Uh, we, For us, it has been a lot on uh, uh, we, we talk about psychedelics being counterculture and something alternative or progressive or anti-establishment, anti-status quo. Traditionally, psychedelics have been used at the core of culture, as a means of transmitting culture, as a means of socialization, celebration, uh, of creating art. And more importantly, frequently, psychedelics are tied to the very stories of origin of humankind and men and how we came about to be what we are. My experience in the dosing room at Field Trip in this slick startup in downtown Toronto feels a long way away from the origins of humankind. But I can definitely see and feel some similarities to these ancient traditions. With the music and the essential oils and the meditation, it felt more spiritual than medical at times. And that's not by accident. Here's my ketamine therapist, Robin, again. I mean, to be perfectly frank, this is something that's been, you know, the incorporation of music in sacred plant medicines or in, in medicine healing ceremonies is something that's been done for hundreds of years, you know, by our indigenous peoples. Now that I've had this experience, I feel like I have a much better understanding of why psychedelics have played such a large role in so many different cultures. Because it's not just that they make you feel better. All those new brain connections are literally expanding your mind. And that can create a subjective experience that feels deeply meaningful, even revelatory. When I try explaining the experience, I often struggle to describe what it feels like without reaching for religious or spiritual vocabulary. And as a non-religious, non-spiritual person, that makes me feel a little weird and uncomfortable. But even still, I have to say, the best phrase I can think of to describe the way this affected me is spiritual awakening. 
Here's another one of my audio diaries, trying to explain one of the trippier ketamine sessions. Listening back to these recordings, you can hear me struggling with this feeling. I, I, I was in the desert. I, I imagined that I was in the desert. I thought, consider a single grain of sand. This sounds so stupid when I say it out loud, but when you're when you're in it, it feels so <laughs> profound. <laughs> but okay, <laughs> a single grain of sand was not always a single grain of sand. Mm-hmm. It came from somewhere. It was part of a pebble or a stone or a rock or a boulder or a mountain. And it, that grain of sand took a long journey over the course of millions of years. And I thought, what if I was a grain of sand? I'm, that's kind of like me. I, to get where I am today, I took my own unique journey, my own life. I had my own experiences and each of those experiences shaped me into the person that I am today the grain of sand. Did you catch me using the word journey in that clip? If you listen to my voice, it sounds more like I've just undergone a mystical experience, not a medical procedure. And in a way, I kind of did. The kinds of insights you get with psychedelics tend to sound silly, almost embarrassing when you look at them in the harsh light of day. I mean, I feel embarrassed listening to that clip right now. It makes me feel like a hippie being all like, love is everything, man. Six months ago, if I had heard someone else describe that exact same experience, I would have rolled my eyes and gone, that's the kind of thing I had no time for. But then I had that experience and others like it too. And I have to say it has challenged me to reconsider what it means to have a spiritual experience. Because when I began this treatment, my life felt pointless. And at the end, three weeks later, I felt like my life had meaning again. I mean, what could be more spiritual than that? It's been a few months since I finished the treatment program and the positive changes have stuck. I no longer struggle to get out of bed I feel motivated to take care of myself. I have a much more optimistic outlook, and I've been planning for the future. That's something I used to be incapable of envisioning. I've been able to go back to work, and my sleep has improved. And remember that reishi mushroom tincture? I now take a few drops in my coffee every morning. I still sometimes get sad or angry or stressed, just like anyone, but I don't feel consumed by those feelings anymore. At home with Danielle, Things have gotten a lot better. What have the past three months been like in our house? Oh my God, so good. So, so good. Um, Your mood is obviously (laughs) a lot better, which has made my mood a lot better. And I think I might have even converted my parents. Uh, Would either of you ever consider trying ketamine therapy? I'd love it. (laughs) I'd I'd do it in a heartbeat if I didn't have to go through years of therapy first. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just not interested in the therapy part. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be interested. And yet I have this misgiving that I'm actually normal. And, and, (laughs) And maybe I have issues I don't know about and they might come out. 
My therapist, Shauna, was pretty amazed by the transformation too. The first time I saw her after finishing the program, I just talked for like an hour straight. It's just, yeah, I don't know how else to describe it, but remarkable that this personality shift that I noted that was so dramatic and so fast has has lasted. It's persisted for, for months. And, you know, it's amazing that with this new personality shift, you've been able to go back to work. You have certainly undergone stressors. You've had triggers. You've had you've had lots of stress-inducing experiences, but you've you've just coped with so much resilience, and it feels miraculous. Is how I would describe it. Miraculous is not a word I expected anyone to apply to this experience before I began, much less a clinical psychologist. I do feel pretty good these days, but I hesitate to use the word cured. I prefer to think of my depression as being in remission. After all, for me anyway, it's a chronic lifelong condition. As I think about this treatment, Dr. K's concerns are in the back of my mind. Nobody wants another opioid crisis and more research is needed. And for me, without that long-term research on the effects of ketamine therapy, there's no guarantee that my depression won't return at some point. But at the same time, I know from my own experience how incredibly powerful this treatment can be. There's a lot left to learn, and it makes me feel a bit guilty to know that I can afford this treatment while others, including people that I know and care about, can't. I hope that'll change, but until then, I am lucky enough to be able to afford to save up to do it again. So if and when my depression does return, this time I'll be ready for it. Julian Uzielli. That doc was produced by Julian. It was produced and mixed by Andrew Friesen and edited by me, AC Rowe. If you are in crisis and need help, you can call the Canada Suicide Prevention Service at 1-833-456-4566. Or you can send a text to 45645. They're there to help. That's all for us this week. But before I go... This was our last new episode of this season. We are going on a, well, I don't know if I would describe it as a break, but we are not releasing new episodes over the summer because we are starting work on getting docs ready for next season. I've already started on some of them. I cannot wait for you to hear them. Right now, you don't have to do anything. Just leave your podcast settings as they are. Keep following the doc project. And when we start releasing new episodes in September, they should automatically start popping up in your podcast feed. In the meantime, we have set our catalog so that it goes back a few years, which means that now is a great time to go back and listen to any docs from our archives that you might have missed. Speaking of missing, I'm going to miss you. Mm, Feelings. Summer. I'll be back soon. Also, also, if your podcatcher has a way for you to rate and review us, please, as always, take a moment to do that. It helps other people find us, and it just means an extraordinary amount to this team. Okay. The Doc Project is produced by Andrew Friesen, Kent Hoffman, Sherry O'KK, Allison Cook, and me. Althea Manasin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I am AC Rowe. I will be back with you in September. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.